I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing. Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. This is episode 213, and and this time we're going to talk about taking the scenic route to doing what you really want to do. My guest is Felicia Lo Wong. She is the powerhouse businesswoman behind Sweet Georgia Yarn. That's a hand-dyed yarn business and based in Vancouver, Canada. Her story is really interesting, and I hope you all find it very encouraging. Because a lot of times we sit here and we think, oh, these other people are successful because they're just really lucky. Or they're like really rich or they're really, they're really something we're not. And then we're like, well, that's why we just don't change what we're doing because we're like, oh, these other people must have some other, some way to do it really easily. So I, I really like when I get a chance to interview someone who's taken kind of the long road to get to doing what they want to do. And they tried some things that weren't the right thing and had to change direction and, and, and change course. Uh, just like a lot of us have had to do. And I think that you're going to really be fascinated by this story because Felicia started out her journey on this path that she didn't really know was going to lead her to a hand-dyed yarn business. I mean, that was not really what she set out to do. So settle in with the project and get ready to just be entertained and I think very inspired by Felicia's story. Felicia, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to be a guest on Craft Sanity. I'm so excited to get a chance to chat with you and hear all about your awesome business, Sweet Georgia Yarns. So were you crafty as a kid? Were you hoarding yarn as a small child? (laughs) Absolutely, actually. (laughs) No, I actually, I did. I started very young. um, And I started, I guess, with a lot of sewing. I I did a lot of hand sewing. I did a lot of making, a little crafting, a lot of paper things, just whatever I could get my hands on. And then I did watch my mom sew her own dress, like when I was very, very young. And so she was on the floor in the living room cutting this hot pink fabric. And I just became really inspired seeing that it was possible to make things for yourself. And so at a very young age, I was started to like play with her sewing machine and I eventually did break her sewing machine. We had to go get <laughs> another one. But I used the leftover fabric from her dress and it was just this hot pink fabric. And I think I made myself like a tiny little skirt uh, with the sewing machine. Oh, cool. And I was quite hooked from there, yeah. And then I think in early elementary school, I sent away for a free pamphlet on learning how to knit. And so I just taught myself from those black and white illustrations and just, you know, got whatever supplies I could from wherever. And so my mom had seen that, you know, I'd taken up an interest in this and she had friends who also did a lot of knitting. And so they brought over their, you know, leftover yarn stash and all this kind of stuff. And 
to me, it was like a treasure trove. I just hoarded all of it. I <laughs> thought it was too precious to knit with. I spent a lot of time like winding them all into beautiful, precious little <laughs> balls and arranging them. And yeah, yeah, it was a good time. That's awesome. And do you remember how old you were when you had when your mom was making the dress and you took that extra fabric? Uh, I I think I must have been around ten or something like that. Something like that. I think I started knitting in gra- grade four. So I don't know how that translates. Yeah, but, yeah. I think that is. About, but yeah, around about there. The, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a magical age too when you discover something like sewing or knitting and you're young and you realize I can make stuff myself. It's very empowering yeah. as a young girl to, yeah. to learn that. So, so from there you got it hooked early. So it's been more than 30 years of this. That's something else. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. 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 I did a ton of sewing through, um, through high school. I made a lot of my own clothes. I made my own grad dress. And then when I went to university, I took up competitive ballroom dancing. Oh, wow. And so I spent a lot of time sewing my own costumes and things like that. So there was um, sort of a lot of love of color, a lot of sewing. Um, I'd been influenced also. My dad is a painter and he's a printmaker. So I've just always been sort of surrounded by a lot of color and a lot of painting, a lot of art, a lot of design and things like that from a very, very early age. And then combined with, you know, doing competitive ballroom dancing where you have to be in a costume where people will notice you and see you immediately and be really uh, visually attractive. Um, Yeah. So I I got hooked on a lot of really bright or, you know, saturated colors sort of at that point in time. That's awesome. And do you get points for your, do they, do they grade you not only on your dancing, but are you scored on your what you're wearing as well does that factor in no no not not, it's more subjective theoretically it's it is quite subjective I mean they are they're supposed to sort of judge you based on your footwork and your technique and your you know your lines and all these kinds of things just the very technical parts of how you dance but people are human like they cannot help themselves from seeing oh that couple is attractive or that couple's wearing an awesome costume and so therefore they'll get, you know, called back to the next round because they happen to be noticed. Now, did you make your par- your dance partner's costumes as well or just yours? No, just mine because the, for, for the guys, they, they have to wear a pretty standard um, tail suit. Oh, yeah. You can't really get too too crazy there. You can't get fancy. There's rules <laughs> <Yeah>. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like, well, that would have been twice the work too. So yeah. that's that's great. And so do you still dance now? No, 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 not anymore. Okay. Where were you going to university? I went to university at, um, well, University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. I, so I studied uh, pharmaceutical sciences. <laughs> I did I did read that online. And so that's yeah. really interesting. So you did you actually work in a pharmacy after you graduated? I did for a very short time. Like I worked part-time um, as a community pharmacist in a pharmacy. And uh, I found parts of that job satisfying, like talking to people directly, helping people, helping people get what they needed to feel better, all of that kind of stuff that felt really good and very, very satisfying. Mm -hmm. But there were still a lot of parts of the job that didn't really suit my personality. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so what, what do you do at that point? Because you're, you're, you've studied this, you've gone through all the training, you get to the professional level where you're, you're out there, you're working and you're like, oh, man, and it just wasn't, it sounds like it wasn't really, it, you realized it wasn't really your thing. It wasn't what you, what you, yeah. what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. So what did you do at that point? 
Well, I actually had a long sort of run at trying to figure out what to do because um, I had done sort of the first year of university in just general science and then I got into pharmacy school. And then on day one of pharmacy school, I sat in that class with like 125 people and I knew that I was in the wrong place. Really? But, um, but you kept going? Yeah. I knew from day one and it's like a five-year program. Oh my and gosh. And so... Um, I just, I knew like, these are not my people. This is not my tribe. This is not where I meant to be. But I got in when a lot of people really wanted to get into the school. It was kind of, yeah, it's, it's a little bit hard to get in. So I was like, oh, well, I'm here now. So I should just do it. So I kept going. But in that meantime, I became obsessed with things like, you know, dancing. I, um, it was like 1994. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. I can't remember which year it is. But 1997, I started designing websites. Um, it was like, you know, the beginning of internet things. Mm -hmm. And I just saw my first website and was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. And just thinking about all the possibilities, all the things that could be done with that. And so I spent sort of the next, I don't know, however many years at university, learning how to make websites and code things and do all that stuff on the side while I was still going to school. And I guess by the time I graduated from university, I had already had paying clients and I started a graphic design firm right out of the right out of university. Really? And so while you were working yeah. at a pharmacy, you were also doing graphic design? Yeah. And so yeah. I would work like four days at the pharmacy and then work one day doing design. And then I would just three days and then two days and then two days and then three days. It just kind of like gradually weaned myself off of that professional sort of pharmacy position and then into a creative work. And so did you have people in your life where people surprised when you switched from pharmacy to something else? Yeah, it was it was not easy. It was challenging because uh, my dad is a, an artist, like I said, and he really didn't want me to go into sort of like a creative career because it's really hard. Like, it's just, it's hard. It's a harder life than if I were to just go and work at a pharmacy and, you know, make a nice salary and that kind of thing. So they really wanted for me to be to not have things so difficult, not so challenging. And so they were not really super encouraging at the very beginning. But then once they really saw that I was passionate about it and I loved it and I needed to do something creative, um, they, they were very, very supportive. Yeah. Yeah, especially most people who change and switch gears don't have that career already launched. <laughs> it sounds like you were, you were really uh, more than just you deciding, eh, I don't know about pharmacy. And that first day, it sounds like you were already, the wheels started turning very early on to have a, another strategy, another approach to life. So yeah. that's pretty yeah. cool. So it's no surprise that you've been able to build your yarn business as, as big as it's been and, and or is it as it is right now. How, how long so you did graphic design. Did you stay in that until you started your current business or did you have other things you did in between? No, I, I did. So I had my graphic design firm and I did website development and um, for, I don't know, like 10 years or something like that. And then I did the similar overlap to Sweet Georgia. So I had started Sweet Georgia as a side blog, just like a like a knitting blog, just a place to talk about my knitting and connect with other people who happen to be knitting. And um, then I started dying and dying just on the weekends. And then I was writing about it and started posting things on Etsy. And then just gradually the the yarn side of things started to take over. And then I started, you know, all of that work started to creep into 
the weekdays and then the evenings. And then I'd started to take over the weekdays during the daytimes when I should have been doing client work. I started doing Sweet Georgia work and then just gradually it sort of overtook everything. And so do you recommend that to people? Because I think what stops a lot of people from making that change into their life. There could be someone sitting at their desk listening to this podcast and thinking, I do not want to be here at that current office where they're at. And they know what they want to do. But a lot of times people don't always realize they have that option to gradually make that shift. They, you know, it's very daunting to think, okay, I'm going to quit the day job and then try something else. And, and it's, I mean, you really don't have to do that and probably shouldn't do that if you don't have a backup plan. But for you, it sounds like that gradual transition has worked twice very well for you. I, I always highly, highly, highly recommend that sort of overlap technique. Um, I think there's, there's a, Oh, there's a podcaster out there. I think his name is Sean McCabe and he talks about this overlap technique and it's, yeah, basically where you transition from one thing to another and you don't have to make that full jump because sometimes you don't even know if it's going to work out or not. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense to just take that humongous giant leap. I mean, there's like an emotional, um, mental leap that you have to make that you say that to yourself that I'm committed to making this work, but it doesn't necessarily mean you just, you know, dump everything and you just do this one thing. Um, there's another book that I'm super, a super, super fan of, and it's called Big Magic um, by Elizabeth Gilbert. And she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. And so she was talking about in that book about how she kept a day job for like the first four novels that she ever wrote. And until Eat, Pray, Love sort of took off, then she was like, OK, well, maybe now I can stop working my day job. But she had said to herself that she was never going to put the pressure on her writing or creativity for that to make her money, that she was going to take a day job and have that day job take care of her and her creativity. And I just found that the way that she described that was so beautiful. And it just it resonated so strongly with me. Because you you can't be creative. It's really difficult to be creative when you feel the pressure and the burden of, oh my God, I have to pay rent or I have to buy groceries or I have to support my families, all those kinds of things. So yeah, absolutely. I highly recommend that. Yeah, it kind of kills the creativity because you're just mm-hmm. so much pressure. It's, yeah. If we could back up, the blog started, what year was that when you started Sweet Georgia? Mm, the blog started in 2004. Okay. And then how quickly did you start dying and doing these experiments that you were writing about? Uh, Probably almost immediately, like within about a couple of months of starting the blog, I was um, interested in learning how to spin. So I had to learn how to spin. And then the only fiber that was available to us locally was undyed. And Mm. so I quickly sort of jumped on the internet and tried to figure out how to dye that fiber. Yeah. And I think that's when it all sort of happened. And so then in 2004, Five, that's when I started Sweet Georgia as a, the yarn sort of business. Okay. And that started out with, with an Etsy shop? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how, what, what kind of volume were you doing? Like how much yarn were you selling at the time? That's a good question. I just remember the first day that I put things on Etsy, I put three skeins up and they sold within like an hour or two. Then I was just putting more skeins up and it could have been like maybe 20 or 30 at a time. And then I found myself spending all my nights packaging things and shipping things. And then it started to get a little bit crazy. And then very quickly, I think within the first six months, I got requests to do some wholesale orders. And yeah, that was quite, quite a big thing. Yeah, that's quite what it really kicks up. Quite yeah. daunting. 
Yeah. <laughs> so for those who might be just learning about you, okay, if you can give an overview of your business, how it looks today, because we know about the, the three skeins on Etsy is how it started uh, mm-hmm. more than 10 years ago. But where are you? What does it look like now? So today, Sweet Georgia has a production um, dye studio space, and we are about 3,300 square feet over two warehouses, and uh, we have a staff of about 12 people right now, and I serve as sort of the creative director, and I come up with sort of um, ideas for palettes for seasons and things like that. We have a team of dyers who help produce a lot of the hand-dyed yarns. We have a production manager who manages all of the orders coming in and everything going out. We have bookkeeper. We have um, Bridget who works at our sort of, we have a studio uh, store. So if you come to our production studio space, there's also a little retail storefront there. Um, We do like a lot of online work as well. So we have our online store. We have our blog. We have um, seasonal collections of design, uh, knitwear designs that come out. So we have a design director, Tabitha, in the States, and she she helps with that as well. So we just, yeah, we have a team of people who are helping to do a lot of the things that it used to be just me doing. (laughs) So how long did you work as a one woman show? At what point? Too long. Yeah, too too long. long. (laughs) How long was that? How long was too long? Was it years or? It was years. Yeah, absolutely. And how many years? So I started Sweet Georgia in 2005. And then it's we started doing wholesale in 2006. And then got completely overwhelmed. And I was like, I'm not sure that I could do this. I don't know if this is going to make sense. And so I took a year off. So I took about 2007 off. Really? Because it just was too much because it was so much work? Yeah, I was like, I I was completely burnt out because I was still doing my graphic design work and I was still serving clients during the daytime. Oh my gosh. And then I was like dying every weekend, you know, 100 pounds of yarn and just by myself and then trying to package it all during the week. And then I was trying to find friends and family to help. It was it was overwhelming. It was crazy. And so, so did you just do graphic design in 2007 or did you just take a... I, I stopped everything. Okay. I stopped everything and I, I went to London three times that year. I was um, trying to apply for the School of Central St. Martins. There's a There was a weaving program there that I thought about participating in. And uh, I, I thought about completely like just throwing everything away and changing my life completely. And then at the end of that year, I sort of came to my senses and I was like, nope, you know what? I want to do this yarn thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what yeah. gave you what gave you that clarity? Just having that break, you think you just it finally you were able to like in the without all the noise, you were able to kind of really refocus. Yeah, it, it's kind of like what we were saying before about um, you know having a lot of a lot of pressure on your creativity and not being able to necessarily um, honor your creative self. And so if you're spending a lot of time just being really uh, production heavy and just focused on, you know, getting stuff done, then you lose a lot of the creativity. So once I sort of said, okay, I'm going to stop everything and take a break and take a hiatus, take a sabbatical. During that time, I was able to do some dyeing just for myself. So I did a lot of natural dyeing. I did a lot of just very, just exploration, just experimenting, just all of that kind of stuff. And uh, that's when I started to realize that, no, this is this is what I want to do, because the things that I was seeing and the things that I was discovering through the colors, that's the kind of thing that I wanted to share with other people. I wanted other people to also experience what I was experiencing when I looked at color and when I was moved by color and when I saw color and was just, you know, 
overwhelmed by the beauty of color. I wanted people to feel that. Well, that's awesome. And so when you kind of decided, okay, I'm going to recommit to this, I'm going to continue with Mm -hmm. this business. What was your first step at that point? Because you would put the brakes on everything. Did you still have existing clients who wanted your yarn? Or I mean, did you just kind of let people know like, hey, I'm back? Yeah, I, I, I very slowly, you know, started to reconnect with um, the shops that I'd worked with in the past and things like that. And then I had just kept up my blog, uh, not very well, but I kept doing the blog and um, just started to build things back from there. And did you get help right away? Did you hire people to work with you or was were you kind of reentering it with, by yourself again? No, I was re-entering by myself again, but then I made the commitment to myself that I was going to grow slowly at my own pace. I was going to grow as much as I could handle. And so I didn't necessarily take on wholesale customers right away. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do it slowly. I'm going to figure out what my yarn bases are going to be. I'm going to figure out what my palette is going to be. I'm going to create this, the framework and the structure of a thing that is sustainable and then from there, I can just add on and add on and grow and grow as I'm able to manage. And I think it was about 2009 when I actually first started hiring people and um, brought people on initially to help with packaging and labeling and things like that um, and just sort of went from there. And did that feel like a huge step with, with that first hire that you made? Oh, it was so scary. <laughs> so <laughs> scary. Like hiring your first person is the scariest thing ever, but the best thing ever too. So how long was it before you then found yourself? Because now you have a dozen employees. And mm-hmm. was that a very slow growth or did you just start taking on wholesale and need more people right away? We wanted to have controlled growth. We didn't want it to we didn't want the growth to overrun us, right? Because that can cause tons of problems. And so we wanted to make sure that we could scale and have all these systems in place and things like that. So hiring people starting around 2009. And then in 2011, I got married and went on a honeymoon. And when I went on the honeymoon, I realized that nothing happened. (laughs) Because I was still, I was still dyeing all the yarn. So I was like, if I go away for two weeks, then no yarn gets dyed. And this is, this is not okay. This is not a system. This is, this is not sustainable. I can't not ever leave the studio. And so that's when I started to have to learn, um, I had to learn to uh, find ways to teach other people how to die and things like that. And so at that point in time, I feel like that's when things really became hugely different and amazing. How involved are you in the day-to-day dyeing of yarn? Um, I think that it is absolutely my job to sort of lead and empower and teach other people how to do this. So I come to the dye studio maybe once a week and sort of check in with everybody, walk around, talk to production manager, talk to Huber, talk to Teresa, all this kind of stuff, and check in with everybody. But they are very self-sustaining. Like they're very, um, how do you say it? Uh, they, they're they're able to sustain themselves absolutely. As a business owner, especially a small business owner, if you don't, if you're not able to kind of let go of some of these things and take a step back, you're not going to be able to grow. Is is that what you found? Absolutely. So I think very early on, like you can see that from 2005 when I started the company to like 2011 when I taught other people how to dye the yarn. That's six years uh, where I was very fearful. Like I was very much like, oh, if I teach other people my techniques, then 
they're going to steal them or they're going to run away or they're going to start their own thing or they're going to, you know, there's lots of um, anxiety and fear of, of maybe training your competitors and just lots of, there was lots of stuff going on in my head like that. Right. And then I met the founder of Y Yoga, which is like a big yoga studio chain here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And I think they're in Toronto now and stuff like that too. But she runs like a huge network of yoga studios. And one of the things that they offered was training for people to become yoga teachers. And I was talking with her and I said, like, is there any fear or is there ever any anxiety you training your potential competitors? Because these people will you know, learn everything and then go out and start their own yoga studios. And she's like, yeah, there's always that possibility. But if you just do everything in love, do everything with generosity, like it will all come back to you. And I feel like having let go has been the key to being able to grow. How quickly after that did you then decide, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to start teaching people how to do what I do? Well, that that was it was all kind of like part of the uh, having to let go, having to realize that, you know, if I go on a honeymoon, then nothing gets died right. or, you know, how am I going to ever start a family or have kids if I can't die at the same time as, you know, I'm pregnant or, you know, all these kinds of things. So rather than saying, OK, sweet George is going to stop because I'm going to go have kids now, um, I had to find a way to make it keep going basically. So this is, this is the system that I had to put in place. <laughs> was that like a process in itself just to come up with that system that was going to work to help others accomplish your end goal of, you know, getting the same yarns that you'd been creating yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not a great note taker. And so there was lots of colorways that I made that I couldn't remember or couldn't make again because I hadn't made proper notes. And so it was a process for me to learn how to, you know, document things a little bit better. And I think it, it helped when I started writing out all my formulas and created basically like a dye manual. And I, then I was able to pass this manual on to other people and, and transfer knowledge in that way. It sounds like it probably made your process a little bit better for yourself too because you had great notes on all the stuff you were making which is yeah yeah to learn how to do all that so now I can look back at you know formulas that we did five or six or seven years ago and I'm like okay I can understand we can make this again you know like yeah absolutely having that documentation is super helpful and it sounds like this went with the yarn dyeing it, it sounds so closely related it, it, I mean it's not like being a pharmacist but in some respects the science of it do you find that some of the things you studied to prepare to be a pharmacist like really equipped you to be in a dye studio and you're mixing different things. Um, but absolutely. Is that, has that been really great to have that background? When I was going through the university program and when I came out, I was really angry a lot of the time because I felt like, I don't know why I'm here. This is the wrong place for me. This is all like useless. But now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, everything that I learned was incredibly useful to me now. And it's just everything that you learn forms some part of your your understanding of the world. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of math involved in pharmacy and there's a lot of calculations and we learn how to 
mix things. And so a lot of that knowledge gets worked up into how I dye things now. Um, so that's kind of how I approach things. So I have sort of a creative background, I have a design background, but at the same time, I have this sort of scientific mm-hmm. background that I'm able to lean on and that makes sense to me, like, you know, percentages or proportions or dilutions, like all of that kind of stuff. It's it's like second nature. In the end, it looks like your path has led you to where you're supposed to be, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So you're a little more chill about the time you spent studying to be a pharmacist now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like now I look back on it actually quite fondly because, you know, I feel like everything comes full circle. It's very, very strange. Like even, you know, when I was in university, I was not interested in the content that we were learning. And so I remember being on a group project and um, our job was to present something about AIDS research in web page format. And I was not at all involved with any of the research side of things. I was like, I'll, I'll set up the web page. And so that's what I did. <laughs> and then after that in, in university, I, I, I took on a self-directed sort of um, project with a professor and it was all about using technology, using the internet to teach people skills online using oh, video-based awesome. education. So then I started to get really involved in sort of like online teaching, online education through the university and setting things up for other pharmacy professors and things like that. And so now combining that with sort of the idea of, you know, being generous and doing everything with love and, you know, sharing your knowledge, teaching, all of that kind of stuff. Now, a lot of my focus and direction is towards teaching people how to dye, teaching people about fiber arts, teaching people how to combine colors in knitting and weaving and all these kinds of things. And um, just focusing a lot on the education side of things of what we're doing. So as I, I watched a video on your website and I think you were in the, in the video I was watching, you were talking about how you were preparing to like preparing some teaching modules for, for this very thing that you're talking about. Now, do you mm-hmm. have that series out or is this something that's forthcoming? It's all done. So um, last May I started working on this idea called the school of sweet Georgia. Okay. And, uh, Basically, it is going to be this very, very long-term vision that I have of creating a lot of online video-based craft education centered around color-obsessed fiber artists. So if you're wanting to learn about how to create your own color on yarn or spinning fiber, then I teach you how to dye that. And so there's two dye courses that are available for that already. And then I also am teaching people about how to combine different colors together to make color combinations for multicolored projects, uh, looking at things like how to knit with multicolored yarn. And yeah, I have lots of ideas coming. But I, I told my husband I'm going to basically be making content for this for the next 10 or 15 years. Like, That's this is, awesome. Well, maybe <laughs> this is what I'm doing Maybe now. longer than that. I mean, there's always something else you can, can teach. So the dye courses are available now. Are these... Um, how do people access these and is there a fee? Are, are they free? Are they a subscription base? What What is your method of delivery? So right now they are sort of like standalone one-time, um, one-time payment sort of courses. Okay. So there's two of those right now. Okay. And how much does it cost to take a, to take the course? Both of the courses together, they're $199 US right now. Okay. And um, the first course was $99. And that one teaches you just how to do sort of solid shade immersion dyeing. And the second one that I just launched like two weeks ago is about more complex colors. So creating glazed colors, layered colors, low immersion colors, hand painting, making self-striping yarn, painting sock blanks, all of that. And that second class is $159. 
Okay. And then you're offering people the deal if they get both then. Yes. Okay. And then how long is the course? Like each course is it like, can you do it in like one sitting or is this something that takes a bit of time? It does take a chunk of time actually to even go through the video based content. The first course, that immersion dying one, that one is about two hours worth of content. Okay. And the second one is like five hours worth of content. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I I look back at it now and I'm like, I should have split it up because it's just too much. It's a lot. And then can people access those again? No, absolutely. So once you once you get it, then you, you can watch it as many times as you like. Tell us a little bit about your yarn that you're producing and what's unique about it. Well, maybe the thing that is unique about it is that it, it started off as a very saturated, very, um, very bold, very vibrant palette of colors. And so what we put out was very, um, yeah, it was meant to be visually stunning and uh, attractive in that way. And so we created this palette and we've been growing this palette and it got up to almost 200 different colorways this this past January. And we finally had to kind of trim and 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 sort of streamline our set of colorways. But this, I think this palette of colorways is what initially attracted people to us. Um, we it, just, this... it does seem a much bigger colorway offering than I've ever seen from a hand dyed business. I mm-hmm. guess. I, I mean, this seems like, this, I mean, so many colors. I'm scrolling through it right now and it's, it is stunningly <laughs> large and beautiful too. These are absolutely gorgeous colors. So Thank you got you. to a point though, where you decided we are getting a little too many in our collection here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it just started to become impossible for people to choose things because, you know, there were some colors that were quite similar and hard to fi- tell the difference between them. I was like, but this one's a little bit like this and this one's a little bit like, but they're like, no, 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 they're a little bit too similar. So, um, yeah, we had to do a little bit of revision of the color list. But I mean, I think that hopefully this palette really represents our aesthetic and that it's an aesthetic that is, um, I guess I have a lot of feelings towards things that are long lasting, right? Like when you knit something, when you work with something, when you're making something for yourself, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of resources and energy and all this kind of stuff. And so you want it to be something that lasts. I don't want it to be something that sort of falls apart at the end of the process or, you know, where the the dye color hasn't stayed properly or where it's a color that you're not going to wear six months from now, just all of this kind of stuff. So I feel like there's um, very, we try to aim for something that's very timeless about it, something very classic about it, something very wearable, very accessible. So I think that that's kind of where our headspace is around all of that. And the same goes for the yarn bases that we dye on. So we dye on um, 16 different yarns right now. And we also do spinning. Yeah, (laughs) we also do spinning fiber as well. But with all of these yarns, nothing is a singles yarn. They're all plied from multiple plies uh, to add strength to the yarn so that they don't fall apart, so that they don't felt all these kinds of things. And so are you do you have a source in Canada or the United States or where's your yarn coming from? It comes from all over. So we work with like six or seven different mills from all over the world. And so there's like a mill in Japan, there's one in Italy, there's one in South Africa, there's one in Canada, there's some in the States. So they do come from all over. That's awesome. Well, there probably isn't enough from one source <laughs> for whatever other things yeah, you're doing. It's, it's actually just really scary because like um, you just don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. We had one situation where 
um, we ordered a ton of yarn from one supplier and there was like an ice storm in New York. And so our shipment got stuck in the port near New York and it was stuck there for like two months. And so I cannot imagine if we ordered all of our yarn from one supplier and it got stuck. Right. You wouldn't be able to somewhere do for two months. You'd be just like, well, we're, we can't, we can't make yarn for two months. That's not going to work. I mean, cause you have so many things that you're offering, but is there something mm-hmm. that people just go absolutely nuts for um, more than anything else? Or have you just been able to kind of grow this business in a way where that you have several things that your regulars are coming back for? Yeah. So, I mean, we make one yarn that I think is the most popular thing that we sell. It's the Tough Love Sock. So it's a 80% superwash merino and 20% nylon. And it's a fingering weight yarn. So you can use it for socks. You can use it for shawls. You can use it for sweaters, that kind of thing. And so this yarn base is just so flexible and so versatile. And people are making so many like big shawls and things like that with fingering weight yarn. So that's kind of like our base line yarn. So we took those and then we made those into mini skeins and like ombre mini skeins and all that kind of stuff. So those two things are going very, very well. Um, the other yarns that we do that are pretty popular are just like a superwash worsted and a superwash DK. So, you know, just very essential kind of yarns. They're like your 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 workhorse yarns. Are you seeing any kind of um, influx of fiber artists in the in the area of weaving coming toward you for, I mean, just because of your color palette? So are you seeing that pick up for your business? That's kind of the thing. I haven't seen anybody specifically tell me. Like I started doing some tapestry weaving this year and I love it. Last year I interviewed Marianne Moody and uh, she's like been a huge inspiration to me. And uh, I think we, yeah, we sent her some fiber for using in some of her kits and for her class maybe last year as well. So there was a little bit of that sort of around the tapestry thing. We also um, are very big fans of Shacked and Shacked looms and mm-hmm. things like that. And I own uh, one of the they, in my basement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, my floor loom. So they they have a lot more uh, sort of projects going on in, in terms of like the tapestry side of things as well. I'm a big fan of tapestry weaving, and I see a ton of it on Instagram, and I think it's really super fun and, and very cool. I feel like. I feel like there are sort of silos of people in crafts. And so like sometimes I feel like knitters who knit only want to knit. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm a knitter who also wants to spin and dye and weave and do tapestry weaving and do all of these things. And and so I'm always trying to encourage people to like do this multi-craftual thing where like if you knit, let me teach you how to spin because that's amazing. After you learn how to learn how to spin, it's... Uh, I think it changes changes your view on what kind of yarns to pick, how to knit, just like lots of things. They all sort of inform each other. So I'm always trying to encourage people to cross train. So yeah, I would definitely um, have to tell people into tapestry weaving, like this could get really outrageous for their stash. I mean, if they look at this page, um, because the colors, it is just so many. And how many did you say you have again? We stripped it down to 85. 85. That's still... Yes. That's down from like 200. But even those ones that are not in the 85, you can still order them. You just have to order them in a full dye lot. <laughs> oh, I see. And how, mu- how much is a full dye lot? How many skeins? It's like four or five skeins, depending on the yarn base. That's still not too bad. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to make bad. a sweater out of a yarn that's like a color that we're not, you know putting on the current list, you can still get it. You're not just dyeing yarn and selling it to people. 
you're teaching classes online, you have a retail shop, and you're also publishing patterns. And I'd love to hear about that part of your business. Did that start right at the beginning? Or do you write patterns yourself? Or do you work with designers? Well, at the very beginning, I had this vision that I was going to dye all the yarn and design all the patterns and publish them all myself. Like and I just, never sleep. I just <laughs> thought that I just don't know what I thought I could do. And it was just bonkers. And so very early on, we tried to release, you know, a couple of collections and they were always very sporadic, very randomly launched because it was like, well, when I have time, I'll mm-hmm. do that. Oh, yeah. And then I just got to the point where I was like, this is not how we should do things. And so it just so happened that I was collaborating with a lot of other designers uh, to put together their patterns to sell under Sweet Georgia. And one of the designers was Tabitha Hedrick. And the more and more we sort of got talking, she finally, she kind of approached me and was like, hey, do you think that there might be like a space for me to kind of do this kind of work? And then I was thinking about and thought, okay, yeah, this is what we finally have to do. And so very soon after that, uh, Tabitha became our design director for Knitwear Designs. And now she also manages crochet designs and so she is the one who sort of comes up with the seasonal collections that we put out so we put out a spring collection we put a fall collection also a holiday sort of mini collection and then she also does a mini may collection which is all her designs but um, those seasonal big seasonal collections are sort of collaborations with a lot of other newer designers and she coordinates everything she coordinates all the yarn support all of the tech editing all the sample knitting all the pattern layout like she is incredibly helpful to to this entire process. Oh yeah, and and did you? Yeah, find... there's no way there's no way I could do that all my own. Well, yeah, it's a whole separate thing it's, to do it's, this. It's a full time job, <laughs> and this could be a whole. And when I'm looking at this part of your website, I mean, this could be its own separate business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, cause if that, I mean, it's so robust. There's a lot there. Um, so when you started working with her, and when was that? When you started um, partnering with someone who could do your, you know, that whole pattern design and making that a go. How long has that been up and running? That's been about three years now. Okay. And what yeah. happened to your yarn business when you launched the pattern part of it? Did you sell more oh, yarn? I think, yes, absolutely. So they kind of go hand in hand because a lot of times people will buy the yarn and they'll they'll buy the yarn and they'll be like, oh, this is beautiful. This is lovely. But they have no idea what to make with it. Mm-hmm. And so just sort of uh, trying to help encourage people with some different ideas or different inspiration. I think that that's been very, very helpful, especially like those mini skein kits, the party of five kits that we make, like lots of people have mini skeins, but they're just like, well, what do I make with the mini skeins? How do I combine them? What do I do with them? So yeah, we do a lot of patterns around that as well. And I think it also helps if, um, because we do wholesale, right? We sell to yarn stores, the yarn shop owners want to know how they can best sell the yarn as well. So they need samples and they need pattern support and they need all sorts of things like that. So yeah, it's just one other way that we can help the yarn shop owners. And so has your studio become a destination stop for people now that you have the retail spot where people can come in and and buy things direct from you? I hope so. Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of people who come because Vancouver is a cruise ship terminal. So uh, a lot of people who are coming through traveling for cruises or knitting cruises and things like that, they'll come to our studio as a stop um, to just, yeah, come and see where the yarn is made. You can come and people are dying every single day. So you can see stuff in progress and then you guys can shop and all of that kind of stuff. I know you want to do more classes. You want to offer more online classes. Uh, What else would you like to do? 
Oh, there's so many things. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I suspected there might be. (laughs) There's so many things. I can only bring so many things forward before people are like, uh, yeah, we just got off of six weeks of like launching something new every single week for the past six weeks. Oh my goodness. We're a little bit like, okay, let's take like a little break for maybe two weeks. But, um, but yeah, (laughs) I do have lots and lots of ideas about, um, sort of, again, related to teaching, but teaching our own dye team, like new techniques and new things. And like, I have this background where I was absolutely passionate about natural dyeing and things like that. And I stopped doing the natural dyeing to focus on sort of dyeing wool with acid dyes in order so that I could create that system around Sweet Georgia. Mm -hmm. But you know, like, as these systems are in place, and as everything is functioning, and everybody's like, working really wonderfully together. I mean, I'm always trying to push the envelope a little bit and be like, okay, well, what can we do next? Could we do that next? Or could we do something else? Or could we, you know, just lots and lots of things. That's great. So it'll be interesting to see what you end up doing next, because um, there's no shortage of ideas. I definitely know. (laughs) There is also one other thing is that just, you know, like, I I don't know if you find this, but I find that because we go to TNNA, we go to market and all these kinds of things, we have a lot of pressure to come out with new things all the time. Mm, And I feel like that's really hard on a business because then you don't want to get super um, spread out all over the place. You really do want to focus on the things that you're really good at and do a really, really, really good job with those things. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been going back and forth on this idea. So that's part of the reason why, like, you know, we were sort of culling our colors and streamlining things and trying to streamline our yarn bases, streamline the fibers and all this kind of stuff. Because, yeah, we just, we don't want to be everywhere and doing everything. But it's trying to find that balance between trying to make things that are new, innovating, continuing to learn and continuing to get better, but then not being spread super thin. Are there other business lessons or business advice that is there something that, you know, you think, man, I wish I would have known this in 2005. Mm, I have two pieces of advice. One's very practical. And that is to find a good accountant or bookkeeper at the very beginning and get everything set up. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but like we are in the business of making things like making objects which need to be inventoried. And so I had like listened to this interview with uh, John Fluvog, who designs shoes here in Vancouver. He had like just very, very popular shoes. And he, he said something about like, I'm not in the shoe design business. I'm in the inventory business. And I instantly like understood that like everything about our business has to do with, you know, keeping good track of the things that you have made, the things that could be made, that your supplies just cost, all these kinds of things. And so that is a good thing for um, an accountant to help you out with, um, for sure. Because, yeah, that's important. <laughs> well, it's the, yeah, it's the basis of the organization of your business to know what you're making, how much you have, <laughs> these practical and, things. And then you said you, yeah. had, you had another piece of advice. I guess it's maybe goes back to that beginning idea of, you know, like doing the overlap thing and all of this kind of stuff. It's really have faith in yourself and trust your gut in terms of what your passion is, where you need to be, like to feel like you can live authentically around the thing that you love to do as opposed to like having to fit into any one box or anything like that. So just to, I don't know, it took me a long time to really be able to trust my own 
voice in my own direction. I am curious about what you do when you're not running Sweet Georgia. Do you have other hobbies that are non-fiber related or do you really just enjoy knitting when you have free time? Oh, I have so many other things I do. <laughs> <laughs> right now I'm running, training for a half marathon. Oh, good for and you. I love snowboarding and skiing. So try to get up to the mountain wherever we can. So yeah, there's just not enough time. I know I asked you about your business. I didn't really ask you about your family or anything. I don't know if there, you'd like to share, because you said you got married. And yes. um, so do you have... Uh, uh, a bunch of pets, a bunch of kids, a bunch of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, a collection of interesting things. I mean, what, what else do you do when you're... Yeah, we are quite busy, actually. So, um, yeah, I, I try to do as much knitting as I can, but it's really kind of challenging. We do have two little kids. One is four and a half and the other is two. And so they are, they're very active. <laughs> yeah, that's... They're what... like very mm -hmm. active. Yeah, <laughs> but I've had a lot of fun. Do you have a, a, boys, girls? So uh, one boy and one girl. Okay, so your oldest is a is a boy. Boy, oh, yeah, so fun. Yes, he's very active, and so he sets the tone. And then the younger one, she just copies everything he does. And well, yeah, yeah. it's her big brother. They're so. they're quite adorable. That's great. And do they get to um, come into the dye studio ever? Is that something that they do, or do you? Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. They come with me. So um, the younger one, Nina, she comes with me to the studio and I come and do visits and things like that. And so she hangs out, walks around, she knows everybody. And yeah, it's 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 great. It's fun. Um, a lot of the other stuff that we have at the studio, they also have kids and um, have seen their kids grow up, you know, in and out of the studio and stuff like that, too. So it's just, yeah, it's pretty fun to have them all around. How, how has motherhood influenced or changed your business? It required me to get very um, clear about processes, systems, things that we had to do. Um, I was told very, very early on, it's like, well, you could still participate and operate your business, but you just cannot be involved in anything that is attached to a deadline. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I have to like learn to delegate and uh, learn to be able to check in with people and learn to teach people and just lots and lots of things. So um, if I had never had kids, I think I would still be doing my own bookkeeping and just, you know, stuff like that. So it sounds like in a way it helped to facilitate a smoother operation over overall. Just, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think it was absolutely necessary. Yeah. Otherwise, I just it's really difficult to get from that point where you're working in your business to working on your business where you come out and you're able to see it sort of from like a bird's eye view. I was never, ever able to do that. I was always like head down right in it. And it was only when I was like forced to step back that then I was like, oh, okay, I need to do some other things now. I know I have become more efficient just because I will look at the clock and I'm like, okay, I'm packing orders. And my kids are in middle school. So my, ki my kids are 12 and um, my oldest is going to be 14 next week. And um, I will look at the clock. I'm like, okay, I got to pick them up at three. And so I will be, I just, just try to set up a system where I can pack in an orderly fashion as quickly and efficiently as possible and get things done. And so I have new deadlines that I didn't have before I was a parent. And um, 
And that has, it's just, I sometimes laugh because I'm like, okay, this is, I'm on a mom deadline right now where I have to get this done. So it's yeah. not just the customer deadline. It's another deadline and um, it does build in some efficiencies there. So absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, like the days where I have childcare, every minute of that day is accounted for. Like I have work planned for every minute of that day. Whereas like before I had kids, I feel like I was like, oh, I'm going to be very creative on Tuesdays. I have a whole day free to be creative, but there's nothing <laughs> like that anymore. Like I, like I might have one hour in the dye studio. Like I have to prepare ahead of time. I have to know what I'm doing. I have to have my calculations done before I enter. Otherwise, that time is gone. So yeah, it is true. You have to be super, super efficient. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being flexible thank today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank Felicia for coming on the podcast and sharing her story. I really do appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you folks at home did too and are feeling very inspired to maybe transition to that thing that you want to do next. I know I have not really gone very long at all without having some kind of day job. Uh, even when I took a break, some of you might remember back in 2011 when I scaled back from my newspaper job. I was uh, had gone from full-time to part-time. And then in 2011, I was like, okay, I'm going to go out on my own and do freelance. And then um, next thing I knew, I launched a wooden weaving loom business and then started producing a magazine and then got sucked back into the work world where I now am working as an adjunct uh, journalism professor and uh, advising a school newspaper and you know now I'm and now my Etsy shop has grown so I'm kind of balancing that and it's really interesting how these things kind of grow on their own and sometimes you launch it into a full-time full blast business and other times you know you kind of are straddling two worlds and you know it's okay to figure out your own mix of what works for you. And uh, I think the the transition part is key, though, because it's always good to have some revenue stream coming in. So your creative life does not become overwhelmed with pressure to make money. So uh, I think that's one of the things that um, really stands out in Felicia's story is that each time she was thinking, eh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. She was already working on the next thing. And it's pretty incredible, like what you can do in six months to a year, as far as transition from one career to the next, you can do quite a bit. Uh, if you make these small steps over a period of time, uh, you can really make a lot of, of moves like that. And if you listen to the Craft Sanity archives, there are a lot of artists and crafters and small business owners who I've interviewed who've done exactly this, you know, mo that whole move where it's not like this flying loop. It's just a slow and pretty smooth transition. And those of you who have been thinking, man, I really want to do this creative thing. I hope you do it. I really do. And if you do, by all means, send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com. Tell me all about it. And who knows, we might end up chatting about it on the podcast. Okay, now speaking of transitions and work and all this stuff, I have to uh, get scooting here because I have a lot of projects that I want to do on my agenda, and I think you're going to see some new stuff from me. I'm really excited because I'm going to have a, a new printing press soon that I saved up all my loom money. <laughs> and I, I've been uh, saving up those, uh, you know, saving up my uh, loom money for a little while now, and I ordered a press six months ago that's going to allow me to print on bigger pieces of fabric. I'll be able to put a t-shirt through the press without cramming it up. 
and have it look all wrinkled and wadded when I get it through. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited. But in the meantime, I have to clean up my studio and make sure that the new table that my friend helped me build for the press is cleared off and ready for this new piece of equipment. So I'm excited about that. So I'm going to be doing a lot more printmaking. And I'm also going to be doing a lot more writing. So on my blog, I want to figure out a way to bring my column back because every sing t single time I go out in the community here in Grand Rapids, I have people who come up to me and talk to me about my column. And I went through a period of time where that was really sad for me. And I just felt like, oh gosh, would people please stop talking to me about my column? Um, and now I've gotten to that point where I am completely through the other side of, you know, the whole disappointment of, of um, having newspapers kind of shrinking and cutting things. And I'm just really eager to get that going again on my own, um, committing to a, a schedule and figuring out a way to finance it. I'm not looking to get rich. I'm just looking to be able to justify my time um, doing these things. So I'm working on a plan there. And I so appreciate my Patreon sponsors who allow me to continue to do what I love to do. And I really appreciate that. Um, it's all very helpful and I'm going to be actually working on improving my content and maybe having some content that's restricted for um, those who have been so supportive of me all these years and it's something that is added content, extra things for those folks. So I asked on the, at the end of last the last podcast what you folks are interested in getting from me as far as content and subject matter goes. So I'd be really appreciative to if you feel strongly like oh I'd really like to hear more about this or I wish Jennifer would interview so-and-so by all means uh send me an email jennifer at craftsanity.com my uh wordpress blog was like overrun with spam so I had to shut down the comments which is kind of horrible because that would was how I used to communicate with people uh but I just couldn't keep up with the spam and I decided not to spend time like going through spam. So I shut it down and uh, now I invite you to email me directly and we'll still have a conversation. Or you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Craft Sanity on Instagram. So you can easily track me down. I'm there almost every day. And yeah, so I'm excited about the creative things the future holds. I have one another interview scheduled next week. I'll be actually on site, so I'll probably do some video recording while I'm there. That'll be fun. Uh, looking for uh, more opportunities to get into some studios when I'm on vacation and traveling around this summer. I always like to do that. So um, I'm going to start working on that next week. I'll be back soon with another interview for you guys to listen to. In the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Same time next week will be craft.